0: Hi, my name is Anna, and I'm on the worship team here at MPC. Our passage this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold... a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So I'd like to introduce to you uh, Reverend Aaron Graham. Let me tell you a little bit about Aaron and the district church where he pastors Uh, In Columbia Heights neighborhood of Northwest D.C., uh, TDC's mission is to make disciples of Jesus who live out their God-given mission in life through worship, community, and justice. The other thing you should know about the district church is that they are a church of small groups where community, discipleship, and missions are able to flourish. I hope that these things sound familiar to you We don't make this stuff up. This is a part of the DNA of the church, who we are as one family of God. Uh, Aaron and his wife Amy are founders of DC 127, an initiative of their church uh, with the vision to unite and dream of the day when families are waiting for children and not the other way around. They first fostered a teenage boy in Boston where they were in school and started a church and are now parents to Elijah and Natalie, who are both adopted from South Carolina. So Aaron, uh, thank you for being here with us this morning. Let me pray for you, brother, before you open us God's word. God, thank you for Aaron and thank you for the district church and for uh, them sending him to us here this weekend. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak through him. That you would give us a beautiful picture of mercy and the picture of adoption, that we might love, know to love and serve others as you have called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: Thank you, Nathan. Well, good morning. You guys doing well? Good. I can sense, I want to say hi to the folks in the fellowship hall. We can sense the Holy Spirit coming from the fellowship hall in here. I hope you guys can sense it. As well, and to anybody listening online as well, thank you, uh, Nathan. And I got big shoes to fill uh, with with um, with James being gone. But I'm grateful to be here. Um, grateful to hear what God is doing at Proclaim Press. Um, What what I'm going to share this morning really builds on the offering that you guys took in November to launch Project Belong in Northern Virginia. And uh, we at District Church um, and at DC 127 are here to cheer that on. And I want to share from God's word uh, today um, that will speak into that. Because I believe that God has uniquely positioned uh, McLean Presbyterian to make a huge difference not only in McLean, but in this whole region for Christ and to help children and families in need. Uh, Your guys' reputation goes before you. I'm close with the Grace DC family of churches that are just right down the road from us. And I have met your unofficial Pope, Tim Keller. So I hope that that puts me in good standing with you guys. Um, Hey, so I, um, I grew up Baptist. And for the first five years of ministry, um, I preached in Boston at a primarily African-American church. And so they talked back to me uh, when I preached and they would help me realize if what I was saying was connecting or not. So I need your guys' help this morning because I, I shouldn't have to do all the work. It's just not fair. Like why, like the body of Christ is united here. Why do I have to do all the work? So, um, but I'm also realistic. I know that you're Presbyterian. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to somebody standing up and saying, yes, Lord, if they're really feeling it, or if I'm struggling, kind of a help, me, help them Jesus to kind of correct. But, but I, I'll take, I know you guys are present parents, so if you kind of do this and nod, I'll take that like the Holy Spirit is really connecting. So I want you to be yourself. I'm not trying to have you be anybody other than who you are. Um, but I'm grateful to be here. On this Sanctity of Life Sunday, grateful that you are a church that stands for life. Um, life from the womb to the tomb, Uh, a church that speaks on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves, that um, speaks um, to the issues and helps protect the unborn. Um, And also, just like you did last week, speak on issues of racial justice on MLK weekend, and then to speak on on Sanctity of Life weekend, and to be a church that transcends political divides and has a biblical worldview. So I'm grateful um, to be here with you guys this morning to talk about Uh, what it means to be pro-life. And one of the things of what it means to to value life is to help care uh, for those who have unwanted or unintended pregnancies, to help come alongside the many of whom live in poverty and say, hey, we are gonna help support you as a family and to support your children. And if need be, um, be about adoption as well. I wanna focus on one of the critical ways that we value life, and that's by caring for who the Bible calls orphans. So, Uh, Orphans are those who are living without uh, their mother or father and cannot be reunited uh, with them for one reason or another. Here in the U.S., there are 100,000 kids that are in foster care who cannot be reunited with their mother or father, who the Bible calls orphans. Globally, there's about 150 million orphans throughout the world. And I believe that this is an issue that God is calling his church uh, to step into, and with almost 300,000 churches in, in America and about 100,000 kids in foster care who are awaiting adoption, I believe that this is an issue that we can see addressed certainly in our lifetime. Um, my adoption story started uh, on my first date with Amy. About an hour into our date, she brought up the topic of adoption. And I quickly realized, I was very interested in her, and I quickly realized that if I wanted to score a second date, that I better get on board with this plan that she already had to be an adoptive parent one day. Well, we've been married just over 14 years now and had the privilege of uh, taking in foster kids, of helping unofficially adopt a kid out of foster care who aged out, and then adopting two kids of our own um, as babies. Today I want to tell you a story about how God turned an orphan into an abolitionist, how God turned an orphan into an abolitionist. And it's a story that may be familiar to many of you, but I hope that you can hear it through the lens of what God, I believe, is calling us as the church and calling specifically you guys to with Project Belong. Um, I believe this message, though, is is also for those um, who may not even be in the stage of life to consider Uh, fostering or adopting. I believe that there's somebody that's here today that needs to hear this story. There's somebody here today who has heard God speak to them in their life. And yet the, the worries of life, the stress of life, the anxiety of life, the financial challenges of life, the lack of time margin, that dream that God has put in your heart has kind of been put on the back burner. And my prayer this morning is that God would put that back at the front of your mind and at the center of your heart. And that God would have his way in each and every one of us. That God, in a sense, would resurrect some dead dreams. Amen? Exodus, yeah, you can say amen. It's okay. Our scripture comes from Exodus 3. Uh, Moses is in the wilderness tending to um, his flock of sheep and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a fire and in a bush that won't burn up. It just keeps on burning. And at that moment, God speaks his name. He says, Moses, Moses. And and he says, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Moses responds. He says, when he says his name, he he says, "Uh, here am I. Somebody came up to me after the first service and they're learning Spanish. And so they had their Spanish Bible. And they said in Spanish, the translation is actually, uh, you have me, Lord. Instead of here I am, it's you have me, Lord. I thought that was really powerful. This understanding that God, you have my, attention. you not only have my attention, God, but you have my life. I am yours. And so God, so, so God has Moses' attention. Moses is in this posture of prayer and worship. And the context, the political context here is that uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, was growing more and more fearful that the Israelites, as they grew in number, were going to become a threat to his reign and rule. So he calls for a genocide of all the Hebrew baby boys and calls for them to be thrown into the Nile River. And in the midst of this crushing oppression, listen to what it says at the end of Exodus 2, verse 23. It says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The first of three points that I want to share from this scripture this morning, the first point is this, that God hears the cries of the poor. That God hears the cries of the poor. The Israelites had been enslaved for about 400 years, and I'm guessing that they had thought that God had given up on them. Can you imagine 400 years of unanswered prayer? How how do you maintain hope in the midst of such overwhelming and crushing circumstances i don't know if you've ever been in a season of life maybe you're in one of those seasons right now where you just sense that you've been praying and praying and that your prayers continue to go unanswered and they were in this place and yet what we hear is that god actually is hearing their prayers god hears the cries of the poor he hears the cries of his people we read in chapter one of Exodus that God heard the cry of a mother who had hidden her baby boy for three years because of the death threats from Pharaoh. And she made a basket and put her baby boy in the Nile River, hoping and praying that God would hear her prayer. And, and out of all of the people in the world, it was Pharaoh's daughter, the one who had ordered the genocide of the baby boy's who went down to the Nile River and saw this basket and went over and then saw this baby boy in the basket. And there was really no reason that she had to show compassion. She lives in the palace, in the king's court. She had definitely seen poverty before with as many slaves as there were in Egypt at the time. But here's a, here's a really important point that I don't want you to miss, that that. Even though she didn't have to act, she decided to act. Because of her social standing, it was optional whether she responded or not. She didn't have to show compassion, and yet she does. She reflects the heart of God and takes this boy into her house and adopts him, and she names him Moses. And this Hebrew child of slaves goes from a death sentence to being rescued and adopted and becoming a member of the royal family in the king's court. God hears the cry of the poor and God hears the cry of the orphan. Now Moses is older now by the time we get to Exodus 3. And his heart breaks for his people who continue to be enslaved. And he's trying to figure out, I'm guessing, how to use his insider status of uh, in, in Pharaoh's court to try to figure out how he can advocate for his people, the Israelites. I mean, his adopted family, as cool as it was to grow up in the, in the king's court and Pharaoh's court, his adopted family was actually pretty crummy. I mean, they were enslaving uh, lots and lots of people. And, and I'm sure that at this point in Moses' life, he felt completely alone. I mean, he's, he's alone in the wilderness and I'm guessing he's thinking he's the only one who's really caring about a solution for his people, the Israelites. And yet here in the, in the wilderness, God shows up to him in a burning bush uh, that, won't, that, that won't go away. The flame won't go away. And he speaks a word to him that will forever change his life. God hears the cry of the poor. Listen to this word. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. This is the same thing we hear throughout all of scripture. This is not just an isolated scripture of God's heart for the poor, of God's heart for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, of those who have no voice. Psalm 68 verse 5 and 6 says this, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He sets the lonely in families. And this, is, this has been the heartbeat not only uh, for God, but this has been the heartbeat of the local church for 2,000 years. In fact, in the early church in ancient Rome, uh, infants, babies were often abandoned on the outskirts of the city in Rome. And, and the practice was called exposing. These were children who were unwanted because of their gender or unwanted because of their um, special need. They were placed outside the city gates left to die. And yet, what we, what we learn throughout history is that Christians were all, who were often a persecuted minority at the time in the early church, I mean, they were not well-resourced economically. They were on the fringes of society. It was, per, it was this persecuted minority of Christians who made a practice of going outside the city walls, finding these children, bringing them home, and oftentimes raising them as their own. Jed Medefen, the president of Christian Alliance for Orphans, says this, he says, throughout history, Christians at their best have reflected the same commitment. Candidates for leadership in the early church were to be, quote, lovers of orphans. And his heart has always been, this heart has always been visible in healthy Christian communities. What if we made how we care for the poor a prerequisite for leadership in the church? Not a prerequisite for salvation, but a prerequisite for leadership in the church. For Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink and I was in prison and you came and visited me. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. So God hears the cry of the poor. That's the first point. The second point is this, that God has a plan. God says to Moses in verse eight, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Brothers and sisters, God is on a mission to seek and save the least, the last, and the lost. And he will go to great lengths, even at great cost to himself, to accomplish his mission. God wants all people to be saved from sin and from the effects of sin, I was talking to my son Elijah, and we were talking about the different kinds of jobs. It was like a dinner table conversation about different professions and what you want to be when you grow up. And we got to the role of pastor, and um, and I was asking, him, "So, what do pastors do?" He's like, "Well, pastors preach sermons." He's always used to me preparing sermons and. I got to go to bed because I got to go work on my sermon or something like this. And so um, I said, so I asked him, I said, so what, what are those sermons about? And he looked at me dead in the eye without hesitation. And he said that God loves everyone. And I was like, yeah, that's good. That'll preach. God loves everyone. God's grace is for all people. God hears the cries of the poor of the people that society neglects and overlooks and says they don't, they're not offering anything uh, to our society. God, the, the word says God sees them and God has a plan and that plan is rooted in his love for all people. God sent his one and only son into this world to stand in the gap, to purchase our salvation through his death on the cross and to rise three days later to prove that that not even death can separate us from God's love. His plan is most perfectly expressed in Christ's life, death, and his resurrection. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, We see this in in Acts chapter one, that, that he's not just ascending to heaven and saying, you know, you don't ever need to do anything. Just give your life to me and wait until you get to heaven. No, he commissions his church. He fills his church with the Holy Spirit and sends us out on mission to be his witnesses, not only here in our own backyard, but to the ends of the earth, to the nations. God has a plan and he has a plan to respond to the cries of the poor. But here's the part that I want to focus on, and it's the part that honestly can make most of us uncomfortable, if we're honest with ourselves. So God has a plan, and point three is this, that you are the plan. That you are the plan, that God works his plan of salvation through ordinary men and women who say yes to him, who say, here I am. I'm available. I'm yours. You have my attention and I realize it's a, it's a pretty bold statement to make that, that, that we are the plan in a sense, but I think you understand what I mean, that even though God can do it without us, his plan is to involve us in his mission of seeking the least, the last, and the lost. And for some reason, he chooses to work through weak and sinful people like you and I to accomplish that mission. Verse 10 says this. So now go, I am sending you, God speaking to Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. I'm guessing Moses is like, hold on, God, are you sure you have the right person here? Like, this, this, this can't be right. You want me to go back to the royal family that adopted me, but then rejected me and wanted to kill me. You want me to go back to them and demand that they release my fellow Israelite people? God, that was over like 40 years ago when I lived there. And those connections have dried up. Like, we live in a city of connections, right? It's all about who you know and how, how, how high up they they are, right? Now, he grew up, like, in the White House, basically, right? But if he was gone for 40 years and tried to come back, it's like, man, your, your connections in this city dry up in, in, in months. <laughs> this was 40 years. God, Moses is like, you got the wrong person for this assignment. When we started the district church seven years ago in our home, uh, we began to research uh, The social needs of our city, of where God had called us, we were located right in Columbia Heights in northwest D.C., just a couple miles north of the White House. And one of the things that we learned about D.C., uh, which I think all of us know in, in a certain sense, is that D.C. is a city of contradictions. In fact, Charles Dickens once called it a city of magnificent intentions. That's the high school social studies book for seniors in D.C., city of magnificent intentions. That comes from Charles Dickens hard to argue that things have changed much um, since then. But, you know, D.C. is the wealthiest metropolitan area in the country. Six of the ten wealthiest counties surround D.C. proper. So D.C. is just about 700,000 people, but there's well over 5 million people in the metro area. But six of the ten richest counties in America surround D.C. And yet some neighborhoods of D.C. have some of the highest concentrations of poverty, some of the highest illiteracy rates in the nation. you think with so much wealth you wouldn't have such disparity. Or take the education system, for instance. We have the most educated workforce in the nation. There's more master's degrees and PhDs. I mean, if you get a master's degree in the D.C. area, it's like you just graduated high school or something. I mean, it's so normal. Um, It's crazy. And yet, D.C. public schools are the lowest performing public schools in the country. Thankfully, that's changing. But you think if you have the most educated workforce, you would have the best schools in the country. Uh, Or take healthcare. Uh, In in D.C., we have some of the the best hospitals in the world. We have NIH in Georgetown, George Washington, Children's um, Hospital. And yet the HIV AIDS rate in D.C. is the highest in the nation and it surpasses many African countries. This disparity is something that I believe the gospel actually speaks to. The body of Christ responding to that. And so we began to meet with the leadership of the city and we were just a small church. We just started out of our home. I mean, we've grown now to be a church of 60 nations with small groups all over the area. But, but at that time, and we were just small, we were a small church, but we had a big dream and a big vision. And we asked the city, what can we do to respond to the felt needs um, of, of the city of DC? And and one of the issues that, that was brought to our attention was the issue uh, of children And families in crisis, particularly kids in foster care. Uh, Four years ago, um, there were 2,000 kids, almost 2,000 kids in foster care just in D.C. proper, and there was 300 kids that were waiting to be adopted. And the leadership of Child and Family Services that oversees the foster care system asked us if we would help mobilize churches to recruit foster and adoptive parents, because they really weren't working with that many churches. And it was like, uh, That's like kind of like a big thing. And we were actually looking to maybe do a coat drive or maybe like canned food drive or, you know, maybe we can start a committee in the church to pray for this issue and like say that we're doing something. But it's like only a few people hear about it. Um, But how many people know that when God speaks to you, you can't run from God? You can't get it out of your heart and your mind. And that's what happened to us. I mean, I came up with excuse after excuse after excuse. We're a church plant. We're too young. We can't do this. And God just kept waking me up at night. And the dream and the vision was so clear that, that God put this on our heart, that one day there would be more families that are waiting to foster and adopt children than there are children on the wait list waiting to be adopted. And we landed on the name DC 127 comes from James one twenty seven, which says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And I'm excited to share with you guys that four years later, we are now working with eighteen churches in DC who are mobilizing over two hundred volunteers to, to care for eighty children in need in DC. It's amazing what started just with this small thing. It was just like where it was with you guys right now. It's like God dropped this vision of Project Belong in your guys' heart. You guys took up a special offering, but you know, one plants, one waters, but God gives the increase. And we're praying that out of McLean Press, That a movement starts all throughout Northern Virginia, just like in D.C., where churches get on board and that there's no longer a wait list for kids looking for a home. That there's no longer churches that are not responding. But you guys at McLean are well positioned to take a lead in this work. We found in DC that many of the kids in foster care, in fact, over half the kids in foster care are actually teenagers. They're kids who have spent so long in foster care and because they have not been able to be matched with an adoptive home, uh, they've just stayed in in foster care. In fact, nationally, there's 23,000 kids that age out of foster care every year. These are, these are kids that turn 18 or in some states 21 and they have no family to call their own. Nowhere to go home for Christmas. Nowhere to go home for the holidays or when they uh, face a hard time. And listen to these statistics. By their mid-20s, these kids that age out of foster care without being adopted, less than half of them are employed. More than 60% of the men have been incarcerated and 68% are on food stamps. The need is great, but I believe that that God has well positioned the local church to take a leading response. I am all for the government responding. I'm all for social workers and all the different agencies. But guys, I believe that the local church is supposed to take a lead role in this effort. It's like Brenda Donald, the head, the deputy mayor, head of child and family services in D.C. told me, she said, government doesn't do a good job of raising kids. We can only do so much. Kids are meant to be in families, and I'm dreaming of a headline in our city that one day reads, DC churches unite to reverse the foster care and adoption wait list. And I wanted to say the church at the headline, right? Because I want God to get the glory. Because I believe that we are to be on the front lines of these issues. And we're not just to, to respond to what the government can't do, but we're, take, we're to lead the way through our sacrificial leadership. And I can't, I can't imagine just thinking theologically, I can't imagine that when we get to heaven, that there are going to be any orphans. I believe that we are all, when we get to heaven, we are all adopted. We all have a father. We are all adopted into God's family in heaven. And if there's, if there's no orphans in heaven, then I believe that we shouldn't have any orphans here on earth, because Jesus is the one who taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth, as it is in heaven. So God hears the cry of the poor. God has a plan and you are the plan. But here's where it's interesting because when God speaks, we oftentimes face a crisis of whether we are really going to believe what God said. Are we really gonna believe as my dad often says, are we really gonna believe in ourselves as much as God believes in us? Now, some of us have the tendency to overestimate ourselves. It's what the Bible calls pride. But in my years of pastoral ministry, I have noticed that most people actually tend to underestimate themselves. And that's what we see was happening with Moses. In verse 11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Has anybody ever felt that way before? Has anybody. Ever experienced God speak to them, but then have this overwhelming sense of inadequacy or no knowledge of how it's actually going to work? Maybe just a quick show of hands. Fellowship Hall 2, raise your hand if you've ever felt okay, good. I'm not the only one. I thought maybe I was the only one. But you know, I remember when God called me into the ministry at 16 years old, I was on a mission trip in Belize. And I was like, why are we only going for a week or two? This should be our entire life. And I remember praying to God and telling God, making a pact with God, making a covenant with God. I said, God, I will go anywhere in the world, literally anywhere in the world to serve you. But one thing that I won't do is I won't be a pastor and I will not do public speaking. I mean, you you had to know me as a 16-year-old. I was afraid to speak up in class. I didn't even have enough courage to speak up in class. My mind is always racing. It was hard for me to focus. And I am here and I, am, I, I have the privilege of, of pastoring today and, and being able to speak God's word because of his grace and because of his goodness and because his power is made perfect in our weakness. And there's somebody that's here today who feels inadequate and yet God is speaking to you. Maybe it's not about foster care or adoption, but God has put a dream in your heart and you're saying, you know what, but I'm too young or maybe I'm too old or I don't have the financial resources or I just got married or, or we just had kids. I don't have a degree in that field. I, I don't really know anybody who would help out. God, there's no way you could use me. I mean, given my background and my past, given what things I've done and things that have been done to me, God, how would you ever forgive me and allow me to be used for your purposes again? That's, that's, a, that's a real prayer life for most of us, right? But let me just say that I'm glad that Moses, David, Jonah, Peter, Paul, and I could go on and on, didn't allow their, their mistakes, didn't allow their sins from their former lives to prevent them from saying yes to God. See, God is in the business of picking unlikely and extremely ordinary people and calling them to do extraordinary things. And you know why God is looking for completely ordinary people who feel unqualified and inadequate? is because when God speaks, when God resources, when God blesses, when God gives the increase, then that person is more likely to give the glory to God because they know that there was nothing in and of themselves that could have produced that result. Are you guys tracking with me? It's got to be God for his glory. And I'm here today to tell you that it's your feelings of inadequacy that best qualify you to be on mission with God. I love how this passage ends. We'll end here in verse 12. And God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, he's speaking to Moses. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God or some translations say, you will serve God on this mountain. The passage begins with a burning bush of worshiping God. And it ends with this vision of worshiping God in the promised land. What's the end goal of being an abolitionist and leading people out of slavery? It's it's not a political end. It's not for the Hebrew slaves to take over Pharaoh's court and then take over the whole country of Egypt. No, the vision is worship. Because here's the key, don't miss this. Unless the vision is rooted in the worship of God, the oppressed will eventually become the next oppressors. Justice will become only a political dream for more power. But when justice is done as an act of worship, it will have more than just life on this earth in view. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in but aim for earth and you'll get neither. And this is the vision that God gives Moses, that the end goal is not just to free the slaves from Pharaoh so that they can get to the promised land and become rich, lazy, and well-fed. No, the vision is that they would get to the promised land and they would worship God and they would serve God and that God would be first and foremost in their lives. Guys, not everyone is called to adopt Not everyone is called to foster. Not everyone is called to provide respite care for a family in need. But I believe every single one of us in the body of Christ can do something to help an orphan or a kid that's in crisis. And here's the comforting thing if God can use a stuttering adopted orphan, named Moses, we didn't get to talk about his stuttering, but that was later in the chapter. If God can use a stuttering adopted orphan named Moses who took somebody's life, that was chapter two, and ran from God for 40 years, then I believe that he can use each and every one of us. A.W. Tozer said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do ourselves. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you set the lonely in families as we heard from your word, that you set the lonely in families. And I thank you, Jesus, for adopting us at a profound cost to yourself. And I ask that you would help us now as your church to tell and to live this gospel story again and again to a hurting world. I pray, God, that you would be even raising up people right here at McLean Presbyterian who would be your hands and your feet to be a part of this new initiative project Belong, but to be also babysitters and to do supply drives and to make sure that every kid in Fairfax County and Northern Virginia has a loving home. God, would it be for your glory and by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.